Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 319 for April 10th, 2023. We got a news show for you today. Lots of stuff to catch you up on. It's not all bad news this week. We actually have some good news as well. Couple quick updates before I get into the rundown. Uh, update your Apple products for sure. Mac, iPhone, iPad, whatever you got. There's been some big bugs that were recently fixed that were being actively exploited. So you definitely want to make sure that your Apple devices are all up to date. Similarly, there's been some important updates for Windows as well. In particular, there's a fix out for a bug that they've dubbed, and they've got to give these things fun names, right? Uh, Acropolypse, you know, trying to work the word crop into apocalypse, I guess. Um, where cropped images were still retaining their original data, you know, so if you were thinking you were cutting somebody out of a picture or cutting information out of a that was shown in an image out of that image by cropping it and then sending it that it was possible that the the recipient, I guess, was still able to re recover the parts of the image that were cropped. So there's a fix out for that. If you're on Windows, make sure you get that as well. Now, I don't do this enough. I kind of wish I could do it more, actually. But I was recently on the other side of the mic, so to speak. Uh, recently, I was interviewed by another podcast called Watchman Privacy. And Gabriel was a really nice guy. I'd never met him before, but he reached out to me and wanted me to come on the show. And I said, sure. So we had kind of a general discussion about privacy. He asked me several interesting questions. So uh, there's a link in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. I also posted a, a link to this on Twitter and Facebook. If you happen to be watching me there, you would have seen it there. All right. So as I said, we have news for you today. I'm going to start off with an article from NPR about <laughs> watching out for tax scams from the IRS here in the United States in particular with tax day coming up shortly. Uh, it's April 18th, I believe this year, a little, little later than normal. Uh, nevertheless, now is the time for tax scams. So I've got a, a good article for you there to help you fend off potential scams around tax time. I've got an interesting article from Gizmodo about some ultrasound attacks that can be used against your smart speakers. Wired is among one of many, many sites with articles about the the, the dangers of chat GPT and AI, and it's been all over the news. I will at some point bring on an expert to talk about some of these things in more detail. Uh, but this, uh, I, this is a particular aspect of chat GPT that I think we should be concerned about. These things are just tools. I mean, they could be used for good or ill, uh, and they're going to be used for both. But on this show, we like to talk about security and privacy issues. So uh, I've got a, a, an interesting article from Wired about one of the ways in which ChatGPT may be used to make email scams more effective. I have yet another story this week about another company ingesting lots of very sensitive personal health data and letting it leak out to social media companies via tracking stuff. Uh, but then I've also actually got some good articles, too. Uh, one from Engadget about how Google is going to be requiring Android apps to let you delete your account data when you delete the app, as in delete it from the server, uh, not just from your phone. I've got an article about Operation Cookie Monster uh, from the FBI seizing a popular cybercrime forum. An article uh, from the EU about how Facebook and Instagram are finally going to let you opt out of first party tracking. Of course, this is only in Europe so far. And there's a lot of caveats to that, but it's still a good step. And finally, some good news from the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. They're going to be cracking down on the lack of cybersecurity in medical devices, which is a great step. So I'll tell you about that. And then we'll have a Dear Carry question where somebody asked me some fun uses for an old Mac Mini to use as a server in the house. And the tip of the week is going to talk about a new browser from the maker of a well-respected VPN that, that was very well-timed around the fingerprinting episode we had two weeks ago. This browser is custom-made to try to prevent web fingerprinting, and it has its pros and cons, and we'll talk about the good, the bad, the ugly there. So lots of stuff to talk about. Let's get to it. All right, first up, it is tax time here in the United States. April 18th, I believe, is the filing deadline this year, which is a little later than normal. Normally, it's the 15th of the year, but for, I don't know, some reasons, for reasons, it's not. It's delayed to the 18th this year. Uh, you know, don't take that for gospel. Be sure you look that up, but uh, I believe that's the, the filing date this year. M mine are done, so I'm all finished. But now is the time. Certainly, a lot of people say this to, to the end, especially if you think you're going to owe the government money. Why not 
wait till the last possible minute to do it. And so now in particular is when there's a lot of bad guys putting out scams because this is when people are most harried and they don't have time to mess around and they know that. So, you know, some urgent message about IRS problems is going to get people's attention. Okay. So uh, anyway, this is from NPR. Let me just read the article. Your phone rings and it's someone claiming to be from the Internal Revenue Service. Ominously, they say the police will be knocking on your door in minutes if you don't pay your taxes right then and there. Don't fall for it. It's not the IRS getting in touch with you. Since 2018, more than 75,000 victims have lost $28 million to scammers impersonating the IRS over the phone, email, texts, and more. That's according to data from the Federal Trade Commission, which enforces consumer protection laws, including those against fraud. The true number is almost certainly even higher, including reports to other agencies and victims who don't make reports. And there are other types of tax scams altogether, like phony tax preparers and tax identity theft. As tax day approaches, here's how the IRS actually contacts taxpayers and how you can spot imposters. And this is a quote from Christopher Brown, who's an attorney at the FTC, he says, quote, if the IRS contacts you, they're never going to contact you first via email or telephone. They're going to contact you in writing a letter, unquote. A call or a visit usually only happens after several letters, the IRS says. So unless you've ignored a bunch of letters about your unpaid taxes, that caller claiming to be from the IRS is probably lying. The IRS won't threaten to have the police arrest you or demand that you make an immediate payment with a specific payment type, like a prepaid debit card. And another quote from Brown, quote, that's a sure sign that it's a scam, unquote. If you think a caller claiming to be from the IRS might be real, the IRS says you should ask them for their name, badge number, and a callback number, which you can verify with the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration by calling 1-800-366-4484. Then you can either call the IRS back or report the scammer here. And of course, that's a link, which if you go to the show notes and find this article, you can click on that. Aggressive and threatening scam phone calls impersonating the IRS have been a problem for years. Callers demand immediate payment, often via a specific payment method, and threaten arrest, driver's license revocation, and even deportation if you fail to pay up or provide sensitive personal information. There isn't data on the most common contact methods specifically for IRS imposter scams, but for government imposter scams overall, phone calls are the most common, Brown says. These scams spread into emails and texts, known as phishing or smishing scams, respectively. They are featured on this year's Dirty Dozen list, an IRS campaign to raise awareness about tax scams. And this is a quote from a different person, an IRS commissioner, who says, quote, People should be incredibly wary about unexpected messages like this that could be a trap, especially during filing season, end quote. People get texts or emails that say your account has been put on hold or unusual activity report with a fake link to solve the problem. Clicking on links in scam emails or texts can lead to identity theft or ransomware getting installed on your phone or computer. But scammers are always evolving. And this is another quote from Brown, quote, initially, what we saw more was the threat with the demand that you make a payment. But then there was this new twist, which is let's not threaten, let's sort of entice, unquote. That newer tactic of luring people with promises of a tax refund or rebate is more often employed over email or text as a phishing or smishing scam, Brown says. But both the threatening and enticing tactics are still prevalent and they can be employed through any method of contact. Consumers who are victims of imposter scams can report them to the IRS or to the FTC. And there are links again in this article for that. Regardless of the specifics, here's a good rule of thumb from the FTC for spotting scams. Quote, the government doesn't call people out of the blue with threats or promises of money, unquote. So not a lot to add to that. I would say if you have relatives that you feel might be more susceptible to these sorts of scams, this would be a great time to remind them of these sorts of things. Of course, they could happen any time of the year, but tax scams, of course, are really popular right around tax filing day. And if you are scammed, I absolutely recommend that you report it to the proper authority. They may be able to help, but if nothing else, we can, they can help keep track of the kinds of scams that are going on so they can warn other people, like in articles like this, about how to avoid becoming a victim. This next article is from Gizmodo, and it's about ultrasound attacks that can be used to hijack phones and smartphone speakers. 
New research shows how an attacker can use inaudible ultrasound to silently take control of phones, smart speakers, or any device with a digital assistant. In a study first reported by Bleepy Computer, researchers found that you can use the technique to give devices voice commands to make phone calls, unlock doors in smart homes, disable alarms, read text messages, and more. The attack was tested on digital assistants including Alexa, Cortana, Google Assistant, and Siri. The technique, called a Near Ultrasound Inaudible Trojan, or NUIT, N-U-I-T, comes from a team of researchers at the University of Texas in San Antonio and the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs in a presentation prepared for the Usenix Security Symposium in 2023, which I think is going to be in August. The attack takes advantage of the fact that the digital assistants use microphones that can pick up sounds that are inaudible to the human ear. NUIT plays sounds in the near ultrasound frequency range of uh, 16 kilohertz to 20 kilohertz to give voice commands to smart devices. Some commands take less than a second to play. The study shows you can deploy Nuit through several different means. For an example, an attacker could trick you into clicking a link to a website or a YouTube video on your phone, which would then play the inaudible voice commands after a delay to control your phone. Researchers demonstrated that Nuits also work when playing from one phone which controls another over Zoom calls, playing on a phone to control a smart speaker or another IoT device, or even embedded into files that have additional background music. In tests, Nuit attacks successfully controlled gadgets including iPhones, Samsung Galaxy phones, and Google Home and Amazon Echo devices. This sort of novel attack tends to see limited action in the real world, but with the rise of AI-assisted computing, voice commands will likely become more essential to our daily lives and audio exploits will be more in demand than ever. All right, so let me just back up a minute and explain what, what's going on here. So your smart speakers, for example, or your phones, or any of these devices that are capable of listening to voice commands to trigger a digital assistant, like Alexa, Cortana, Google Assistant, and Siri. You ask them to do something. You say, hey, whatever, do this for me, or ask a question, or look this up, or hey, open my door, or read back my text messages, or send an email, or, you know, you, there are several different commands you can give these devices, and some of them can do things that might compromise your privacy or security. And so what these guys have figured out is they can play these voice commands at a frequency level above which most adult humans cannot hear. And I would venture to say that even young kids who whose ears can still hear in that hearing range, and we actually have a whole story about this coming up in a minute, uh, this, this concept, probably wouldn't be able to understand what was said. But basically, at a, at, a, at a frequency range above which we can't hear, but for which these devices have microphones capable of hearing and responding to, they play this voice command. Now, you might be thinking, well, how does that work? So it, when I ask my device to do something, it usually responds, right? Well, one of the things they might do is that the first command might be, hey, turn your response volume way down so that when they do respond, it's at such a low volume, you, you can't hear it. But then once they get the devices to hear this high pitched voice that you can't hear and get it to do things, you know, they can get up to lots of mischief, basically, is what this thing is saying. So I couldn't help but think, you know, what we might do to solve this problem. And I mean, the first thing that I think of as an engineer, certainly as an electrical engineer, is that, hey, why don't we just put a low pass filter uh, on these microphones to filter out these inaudible high frequency sounds. Like why do these microphones need to be listening to high pitched sounds that humans can't even hear? That would also block this crazy ultrasonic beacon technology that allows some, some of your devices to spy on other devices. For example, this is a real thing. I'm not making this up. Some TV commercials play ultrasonic frequencies such that if you're on your phone while you're watching TV or on your iPad or on your computer, maybe, and you're in Facebook, for example, that Facebook app, maybe if it has access to your microphone, maybe listening for those ultrasonic tones, and then it would know what commercials you're watching or what TV shows you're watching or whatever, uh, because embedded sometimes <laughs> in these uh, TV programs or commercials and things are these high pitched signals that are designed to communicate with apps that know what to listen for. That would block this as well. However, I've also heard that if you've ever wondered why when you're watching a commercial for one of these devices, 
that is like, let's say if I'm trying to advertise Google Home as a cool device that you might want to buy in a, in a, in a commercial and I say, hey, and I, was, I don't want to say it because I don't want to want to wake up your devices. But if I say, you know, Google, do something or whatever, why doesn't that actually wake up my device? Because when I say that, it wakes up and does something. Well, they've actually mucked with the commercial for that product with special frequency signals that the device either listens for or looks for the absence of to determine, oh, that wasn't a real command and I should ignore it. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is there's all sorts of things going on with these speakers uh, on your devices that, that are that you may not be aware is going on. Some for good purposes, but mostly for things you probably would prefer they don't do. Now, HomePods, uh, these are the little Apple Home speakers uh, that also have the digital assistants built in for Siri and whatever, actually have the capability of learning people's voices, which would work well in this case to block this particular attack. If you've trained your HomePods to only respond to certain people, then it wouldn't respond to these weird ultrasonic voices that are coming from somewhere else. And if you're interested in that, I put a link in the show notes uh, to tell you how to train your Apple HomePod devices to listen for specific voices. And the reason they have this, by the way, is so that when you have multiple people in your house and, you know, shared HomePod speakers, it'd be really nice if when somebody asked Siri to do something that it would give a personal response, like maybe what's on my calendar today, uh, things like that. So just one more interesting tidbit on this. There are these things called mosquitoes that the companies have been using to try to ward off loitering teenagers uh, from around their businesses after hours. And there are these speaker boxes that emit these high-pitched sounds, these really annoying, loud, high-pitched sounds that only teenagers can hear, basically, to try to keep them from loitering around businesses after hours. And basically, these sounds are somewhere in the 18 kilohertz range. And apparently, uh, and I did a little research on this because I was just curious, that people, generally humans, from the age of 13 to 25 years old, still have most of their, <laughs> most of their high frequency hearing. But as you get older, the, the, the cells in your ears, I guess, that are, that are attuned to these higher frequencies age out, die or whatever, and they're incapable. And so you become incapable of hearing these higher frequencies. And so some smart company came up with this idea of, hey, if we want to get rid of these teens, let's play a really loud noise that only they can hear after hours to keep them from, you know, skateboarding around our parking lot or whatever, or hanging around and getting up to mischief after hours. <laughs> so I, I don't know how well these things work and I don't know how popular these things are, but I just thought that was funny and it was related to this article. So I thought I would throw in that little useless tidbit of information. All right. Next up, this is from Wired. And this is one of many articles I've read recently about the potential threats to these new AI systems like ChatGPT that you've surely been seeing on the news a lot lately. But it was related to cybersecurity. So I, I thought this was interesting and I thought it has some good points. So let me just read this article from Wired. Here's an experiment being run by undergraduate computer science students everywhere. Ask ChatGPT to generate phishing emails and test whether these are better at persuading victims to respond or click on the link than the usual spam. It's an interesting experiment, and the results are likely to vary wildly depending on the details of the experiment. But while it's an easy experiment to run, it misses the real risk of large language models, or LLMs, which is a, a, the technical term really for some of these tools like ChatGPT, these large language model writing scam emails. Today's human-run scams aren't limited by the number of people who respond to the initial contact email. They're limited by the labor-intensive process of persuading those people to send the scammer money. LLMs are about to change that. A decade ago, one type of spam email had become a punchline on every late-night show. I am the son of a late king of Nigeria in need of your assistance. Nearly everyone had gotten one or a thousand of those emails, to the point where it seemed everyone must have known they were scams. So why were scammers still sending such obviously dubious emails? In 2012, researcher Cormac Hurley offered an answer. It weeded out all but the most gullible. A smart scammer doesn't want to waste their time with people who reply and then realize it's a scam when asked to wire money. By using an obvious scam email, the scammer can focus on the most potentially profitable people. It takes time when back and forth with these marks. 
to nudge them step-by-step from interlocutor to trusted acquaintance to pauper. Long-running financial scams are now known as pig butchering, growing the potential mark up until their ultimate and sudden demise. Such scams, which require gaining trust and infiltrating a target's personal finances, take weeks or even months of personal time and repeated interactions. It's a high-stakes and low-probability game that the scammer is playing. Here's where LLMs will make a difference. Much has been written about the unreliability of OpenAI's chat GPT models and those like them. They quote-unquote hallucinate frequently, that is, making up things about the world and confidently spouting nonsense. For entertainment, this is fine, but for most practical uses, it's a problem. It is, however, not a bug, but a feature when it comes to scams. LLM's ability to confidently roll with the punches, no matter what the user throws at them, will prove useful to scammers as they navigate hostile, bemused, and gullible scam targets by the billions. AI chatbot scams can ensnare more people because the pool of victims who will fall for a more subtle and flexible scammer, one that has been trained on everything ever written online, is much larger than the pool of those who believe the king of Nigeria wants to give them a billion dollars. A single scammer from their laptop anywhere in the world can now run hundreds or thousands of scams in parallel, night and day, with marks all over the world in every language under the sun. The AI chatbots will never sleep and will always be adapting along their path to their objectives. And new mechanisms will enable composition of AI with thousands of API-based cloud services and open-source tools, allowing LLMs to interact with the internet as humans do. The impersonations in such scams are no longer just princes offering their country's riches. They are forlorn strangers looking for romance, hot new cryptocurrencies that are soon to skyrocket in value, and seemingly sound new financial websites offering amazing returns on deposits. And people are already falling in love with LLMs. And (laughs) there's links in there, and I think they mean literally. Like, being fooled by LLMs that they're thinking they're real people. Anyway, this is a change in both scope and scale. LLMs will change the scam pipeline, making them more profitable than ever. We don't know how to live in a world with a billion, or ten billion, scammers that never sleep. There will also be a change in the sophistication of these attacks. This is not due only to AI advances, but to the business model of the internet, surveillance capitalism, which produces troves of data about all of us, available for purchase from data brokers. Targeted attacks against individuals, whether for phishing or data collection or scams, were once only within the reach of nation states. Combine the digital dossiers that data brokers have on all of us with LLMs, and you will have a tool tailor-made for personalized scams. Companies like OpenAI attempt to prevent their models from doing bad things, but with the release of each new LLM, social media sites buzz with new AI jailbreaks that evade the new restrictions put in place by the AI's designers. ChatGPT, and then Bing Chat, and then GPT-4 were all jailbroken within minutes of their release, and in dozens of different ways. Most protections against bad uses and harmful output are only skin deep, easily evaded by determined users. Once a jailbreak is discovered, it usually can be generalized, and the community of users pulls the LLM open through chinks in its armor. And the technology is advancing too fast for anyone to fully understand how they work, even the designers. Okay, so that last little bit there, I think, was a little overly dramatic. But it is true, I think, that these new systems can and will, and probably already are, being used to make these phishing scams more effective. I also wanted to read this article because it brings up the term pig butchering, which is something I've been meaning to mention on this uh, show for a while. But this is like kind of like the long game con. This is where you engage somebody for some weird reason. Like if you've ever gotten those chat requests or friend requests so that it's like, hey, and they're just someone trying to start up a conversation or maybe starting a conversation with somebody who obviously isn't you, like it's a mistake, like they reached out to the wrong person. Well, they didn't reach out to the wrong person. They're just trying to get you into, to engage. And so what these scams are doing is they're, they're trying to get you talking, get you rolling along. And then very soon the conversation turns to, you know, hey, you seem like a nice person. Tell you what, I happened about this really great investing scheme or something like that. And then the scam starts. But all of this, all of this back and forth that used to take a human to do can now be done by these chatbots and done really well and done in multiple languages, done with excellent grammar, even working in in a 
you know, facts and figures and current events and, you know, bringing in all sorts of things that will make it seem fresh and new and relevant. And as this article points out, and, and it, it talks about getting this information from data brokers, but I mean, if, if I have your phone number or your email address, and that's how I'm trying to reach you with this scam, I can probably find your social media accounts associated with that ID as well. And if I pointed my, you know, if I pointed some of these AI chatbots at someone's social media accounts, I could then start working in your, your interests, the, the things you've been doing lately, the people, you know, the kinds of articles that you like to read and, and therefore are reposting on your social media. For example, it is not a stretch to think that I could automate a lot of that to make highly personalized chatbot interactions with people to try to string them along and get them into these scams automatically without even requiring a human. Now, there was this really cool service that did this exact thing, except in reverse that I just, I love this. And so what this, what this place did, it was called re-scam as an RE colon scam, kind of like, you know, reply or RE, you know, you know, when you reply to someone's email and they had a website called rescam.org, which is now defunct again, it was down for a while and back and it looks like it's down again. They do have a Twitter presence if you want to follow them on Twitter. But basically what you would do is if you're getting junk emails, uh, you know, these kind of scam emails looking for some sort of response, you could forward that email sight unseen to this rescam service and they would pick it up from there because from that email, they can see who sent you that email, right? They can, they can look and see who sent you the original email and, and your email address. And so what this service would do is it would automatically engage that scammer via email in the lengthiest, most unproductive back and forth conversation that, that it could. Just, just to waste their time. For example, I remember one of the automated replies that this thing would do was, you know, someone said, well, you know, I need, it's like the Nigerian prince. I need your account number to, you know, you, I need to uh, take a little bit of money for your account and verify that works before I deposit a billion dollars or whatever. So give me your account number. And uh, the automated agent was set up to reply like, oh, that sounds great. I tell you what, though, for security, though, I want to make sure that I, uh, I, I want to give you just one digit at a time. And so here's the first digit of my account number, five. <laughs> and it would send the email. And then the, the response, it showed an example of one of the responses. And one of the responses, oh, hey, that's a great idea. But you know what? Don't, you know, don't worry about that. We're good. Go ahead and send me the whole number. And then the, the, the next response would be seven. <laughs> and so the whole thing, the whole idea of this rescam thing was designed to waste as much time of these scammers as possible. So anyway, I envision a future where if we keep having more services like this, we're going to have uh, scam bots and anti-scam bots chatting with each other, which uh, is just it's just hilarious. Okay, let, let, let's move on. This was next one is from TechCrunch. And this is yet another case where uh, companies that were collecting sensitive health information, let it leak through social media tracking tools. For years, online alcohol recovery startups Monument and Tempest were sharing with advertisers the personal information and health data of their patients without their consent. Monument, which acquired Tempest in 2022, confirmed the extensive years-long leak of patients' information in a data breach notification filed with California's Attorney General last week, blaming their use of third-party tracking systems developed by ad giants including Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Pinterest. When reached for comment, Monument CEO Mike Russell confirmed that more than 100,000 patients are affected. In its disclosure, the company confirmed their use of website trackers, which are small snippets of code that share with tech giants information about visitors to their websites and often used for analytics and advertising. The data shared with advertisers includes the patient's names, dates of birth, email and postal addresses, phone numbers and membership numbers associated with the companies and the patient's insurance provider. The data also included the person's photo, unique digital ID, which services or plan the patient is using, appointment information, and assessment and survey res responses submitted by the patient, which includes detailed responses about a person's alcohol consumption and used to determine their course of treatment. Monument's own website says these surveys are protected and used only by its care team. Monument confirmed that it shared patients' sensitive data with advertisers since January of 2020 and Tempest since November of 2017. Both companies say they have removed the tracking code from their websites, but the tech giants are not obligated to delete the data that Monument and Tempest shared with them. 
Monument and Tempest are the latest healthcare companies to disclose the inadvertent sharing of patient data with third parties by way of tracking technologies. Last month, online mental health startup Cerebral confirmed it had exposed the personal and health information of more than 3 million patients who signed up to its services because of a similar years-long leak of data to third-party advertisers. So I'm pretty sure I covered that Cerebral <laughs> leak when it happened as well. Sorry to just beat this dead horse, but it's just another instance of this. And it's another great reason why using something as simple as a privacy respecting browser like Firefox or privacy plugins like uBlock Origin will block a lot of that type of tracking. And also, of course, why, why we desperately need privacy protections in the United States. All right, now let's get to some good news. This is from Engadget. Google wants to make it as easy to scrub an app account as it is to create one. The company has announced that Android apps on the Play Store will soon have to let you delete an account and its data both inside the app and on the web. Developers will also have to wipe data for an account when users ask to delete the account entirely. The move is meant to quote-unquote better educate users on the control they have over their data and to foster trust in both apps and in the Play Store at large. It also provides more flexibility. You can delete certain data, such as your uploaded content, without having to completely erase your account, Google says. The web requirement also ensures that you won't have to reinstall an app just to purge your info. The policy is taking effect in stages. Creators have until December 7th to answer questions about data deletion in their app's safety form. Store listings will start showing the changes in early 2024. Developers can file for an extension until May 31st of next year. The changes come several months after Apple instituted a similar rule for App Store software. In both cases, the companies are concerned about privacy violations and the ensuing fallout. They don't want users to fall prey to data breaches because they couldn't easily delete accounts or sensitive info when they stopped using an app. This also follows growing efforts by regulators to demand more control over services. The Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, recently proposed rule changes requiring easy ways to cancel subscriptions and memberships. While the FTC is focused more on unwanted charges than privacy, the message to app makers is clear. Provide more control of accounts or face repercussions. Now, that article actually, the FTC thing, linked to another very short article, which I think is also important, which happened recently and I didn't talk about it at the time. So I'm going to read it here instead. Uh, and this is another article from a gadget, the one this one just linked to. You might not have to go to great lengths to cancel subscriptions in the future. The Federal Trade Commission is proposing rule changes that would require providers to make it as easy to cancel subscriptions as it is to sign up including through the same medium. If it only takes a few clicks to join an online fitness class, for example, you should have the option to cancel online in just as many steps. The proposal would also let you decline to hear pitches for additional offers when you want to cancel service. Providers would have to provide annual reminders of renewals for subscriptions to anything besides physical goods, the, the FTC says. Other rule updates would require clear explanations of what people are getting and bar misleading claims. The FTC's effort would revise the negative option rule from 1973 and would echo European Union policies on subscriptions. This will ideally prevent companies from either fooling customers into paying for services they don't want or are done using, Commissioner Chair Lena Khan says. It's also meant to prevent the all-too-common tactic of forcing customers to call or visit a store in order to make the cancellation process difficult. The proposal doesn't outline specific penalties for violations. It's not clear how effective the updated rules would be at deterring offenders. If implemented, though, the approach could make it easier to experiment with services. You, you could subscribe for a few months without worrying that you'll struggle to cancel your plan. Telecoms, meanwhile, might also have to let you leave without making last-ditch offers or asking you to talk to a shop clerk. So that's semi-related, but it's also really good news. We need more things like this. And it's just like the, the gym membership scam, right? It's so hard to get out of a gym membership. There, we've got you know plenty of online stories, and I'm sure you've heard them from friends and family, about trying to get out of a gym membership when they swear up and down that you can get out when you want to. But it's like that now for so many other things too, and that's what the FTC is trying to address here. But back to the original article, uh, it's it's great that they're also now trying to make it easy for people to have their data eliminated online. That is, you know, not just whatever data might be stored on your on your device when you delete the app, but actually, if I want to close the account, I want you to delete my data from your servers as well. You know, there's how bad would it be if I close my account with you and there's a data breach two two years later 
that my data gets exposed then because they didn't delete my data and it should be easy to do. It should not be hard to do. So anyway, that, that, this is good news and I, we, we need more stuff like this. And by the way, <laughs> these are regulations. These are the things that the government can be doing for you. The government can help when it puts its mind to it. It can do good things for people. Speaking of which, uh, the FBI just closed down a popular cybercrime forum in something they're calling Operation Cookie Monster. Uh, and this is actually from CNN, who I don't quote very often, but this is a CNN article. The FBI and European law enforcement agencies have arrested more than 100 people as part of a global crackdown on a cybercrime forum that facilitated large-scale identity theft, officials said Wednesday. The operation targeted Genesis Market, an invitation-only crime forum that for the last five years, according to the U.S. Justice Department, has offered data stolen from more than 1.5 million computers around the world containing login details for more than 80 million user accounts. The FBI on Tuesday took one of the main websites used by the cybercrime forum offline, and more than a dozen countries from the Netherlands to Australia were involved in raids and other measures against the alleged cybercriminals. At least some of the arrests occurred in the U.S., a senior FBI official told reporters Wednesday, declining to give further details because of an ongoing investigation. Victims of Genesis incurred losses that, quote, exceeded tens of millions of dollars, unquote, the FBI official said. In a statement Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland called the cybercrime sting against Genesis unprecedented for law enforcement, adding that 45 of 56 FBI field offices across the U.S. were involved in the operation. The Bureau seized the web domains of Genesis Market pursuant to a court order from the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Wisconsin, according to the seizure notice viewed by CNN. The FBI dubbed the takedown as Operation Cookie Monster, a play on the forum's sale of web browser information known as cookies, per the seizure notice. Genesis Market has played a key role in giving cybercriminals access to hacked computers for carrying out other forms of fraud, such as identity theft and ransomware attacks. The law enforcement operation against Genesis Market comes on the heels of the FBI's raid of another popular criminal forum, Breach Forums, that had touted data stolen in a hacking affecting members of Congress and thousands of other people. The FBI arrested a 20-year-old New York man accused of being the founder of Breach Forums. While arrests take some alleged cybercriminals offline, the acute demand for stolen personal data means that other alleged hackers often quickly spring up to take their place. So this is good news, but, you know, tempered by the fact that, like this article just said at the end there, that <laughs> this is a very lucrative uh, business and there will be others to jump in to take the place of these ones that were shut down. But, hey, you know, you got to you got to do what you can. And so it's it's good that the law enforcement agencies are out there making a difference and hopefully making a dent in some of this cybercrime. All right, next up, this is from BGR. And this is about how Facebook is very grudgingly letting people opt out of first party tracking, in other words, by Facebook, but unfortunately only in Europe because Europe has privacy laws and we don't. Okay, Meta will finally do the unthinkable and let Facebook and Instagram users opt out of user tracking, which services like Facebook and Google use to serve highly targeted ads. That marks the first time Meta is willing to allow users to avoid tracking on its own platforms. But there are a few big caveats. First, Meta will only let Facebook and Instagram users in Europe opt out of tracking. Secondly, Meta will only allow users to opt out after they submit an online form expressing their objections to Meta's tracking of in-app activity ads. Meta will then evaluate the user's request and possibly implement the change. That's all according to the Wall Street Journal's sources, which are said to be familiar with Meta's plans. Meta is only taking such action in Europe for one reason. It's because the European Union is forcing the social media giant to give customers in the region the option to object to Facebook and Instagram tracking. And the EU is forcing Meta's hand via hefty fines. The latest big fine dropped in early January, which we discussed with Johnny Ryan. Ireland's Data Protection Commission fined Facebook and Instagram a total of around $423 million for requiring users to agree to a contract that includes behavioral ads. 
These are targeted ads that Meta delivers after analyzing a user's activity on Facebook and Instagram. That activity might include Facebook posts that a user comments on, or videos on Instagram a person watches. As the Wall Street Journal reports, Meta allowed Facebook users to avoid tracking on other websites and apps, and Apple forced Meta to ask all iPhone and iPad users for consent to collect user data. But this marks the first time Meta will enable the opt-out feature in its main apps. Unfortunately, Meta is doing everything it can to prevent users from opting out while seemingly giving them a way out. Users who wish to opt out will have to submit an online form objecting to Meta's use of their in-app activity for ads, and the company will then evaluate any user's objections before implementing the change, the people said. That could limit the effect of the change to Meta's advertising business and fall short of satisfying at least some regulators and privacy activists, probably all of them. Moreover, the Wall Street Journal says Meta's approach could spark additional complaints in the region. That is, Meta isn't asking for explicit consent for user tracking on Facebook and Instagram. It's offering a cumbersome opt-out procedure. That said, Facebook and Instagram users in Europe should opt out of meta-tracking no matter how difficult the process might be. And I would agree 100%. We need to take this opportunity, as, as horrific as it sounds, to show them, hey, stop it. <laughs> we don't want you tracking us anymore. I mean, assuming you believe that, I mean, if you if you're happy with it, then obviously you're fine with the status quo. But if you care about privacy at all, even if you don't particularly care about what's going on at Facebook and Instagram, which Facebook owns Instagram, you will still be registering your disdain for this whole process and this advertising model and business model and privacy invasion in general by going through this process. And by the way, if anybody listening to this from the EU has gone through this process and has uh, some information about what it was like, uh, reach out. I'd love to hear what you had to say. All right, one more news article, and it's from something called SC Magazine, which I've, I've never read before, but I ran across this. Uh, and it's about the FDA is going to be imposing some serious restrictions on medical devices for cybersecurity, which is great. So anyway. The Food and Drug Administration announced March 29th that it will begin to, quote-unquote, refuse to accept medical devices and related systems over cybersecurity reasons beginning October 1st. All new device submissions must include detailed cybersecurity plans beginning March 29th. As such, device manufacturers will need to submit plans to monitor, identify, and address in a, quote-unquote, reasonable time frame any determined post-market cybersecurity vulnerabilities and exploits, including coordinated vulnerability disclosures and plans. Developers must now design and maintain procedures able to show with reasonable assurance, quote, that the device and related systems are cyber secure, unquote, and create post-market updates and patches to the device and connected systems that address, quote, on a reasonably justified regular cycle known unacceptable vulnerabilities, unquote, according to the guidance. If discovered out of cycle, the manufacturer must also make public, quote, critical vulnerabilities that could cause uncontrolled risks, unquote, as soon as possible. Submissions will also need to include a software bill of materials, an SBOM or SBOM, which must contain all commercial, open source, and off-the-shelf software components while complying with other FDA requirements, quote, to demonstrate reasonable assurance that the device and related systems are cyber secure, unquote. These plans should come as no surprise to device manufacturers as they were included in new authorities granted by the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which was signed into law on December 29th. The law created long-desired FDA authorities that were left out of previous resolutions and include requirements and includes requirements for pre-market submissions proposed by the Protecting and Transforming Cyber Healthcare or Patch Act, which is something we talked about with Josh Corman uh, late last year. The December inclusion yielded overwhelming support from healthcare stakeholders who've long requested federal support to curtail systemic challenges with securing medical devices. Healthcare delivery organizations have long borne the onus of securing the vast complex device ecosystem, and even the most equipped health systems do not fully meet the task. The new cybersecurity requirements don't apply to applications or submissions submitted to the FDA before March 29th. 
and the refuse to accept decisions for pre-market submissions based solely on cyber reasons will not go effect until October 1st. Rather, the FDA says it intends to, quote, work collaboratively with sponsors of such pre-market submissions as part of the interactive and or deficiency review process, unquote. The agency expects that cyber devices sponsors, quote, will have sufficient time to prepare pre-market submissions, unquote, to include the cyber requirements contained in the finalized guidance. All right, it, it goes on. It's honestly a little bit hard to read. But this is this is good news. This is, again, this is the government working for us. This is the government putting out regulations because it's the only way we're going to get security in this stuff. It's just the market dynamics are not there to promote security. They're there for profitability, which is almost always at odds with security. So is this a silver bullet? No, probably not. But it's a step in the right direction. And I mean, think about these things. They, you know, think about like an insulin pump or a pacemaker. Uh, some of these devices that are embedded in our our bodies, or almost permanently attached to our bodies, that have some sort of radio interface and probably some way to connect to the internet. These things have hackable interfaces. What if I could walk through a crowd and broadcast signals to anybody with a, a pacemaker or an insulin pump to have those things? shut off or do things that would cause these people harm. These devices have little computers in them too, and they run software. I could potentially program these devices to do something bad next week or on a certain day or under certain conditions. And then there's medical devices that are in hospitals. You know, like think of your classic spy movie where there's, you know, a witness who's been injured and he's in the hospital and he's under police surveillance so that nobody can get in there and kill him while he's recovering before he can testify in trial. Well, if I can get within 30 feet of him and use Bluetooth to, to, to turn off, you know, some device or that's keeping him alive or to inject too much morphine or something like that into a system without even having to go in the room, you know, these are cyber attacks on medical devices. So anyway, this is this is good news and I'm I'm glad to see it. Okay, let's do the dear carry question of the week. And this is from Braden in Nova Scotia, Canada. And Braden says, "I recently got a Mac mini that I'm running as a server. Any suggestions or ideas for privacy-centric services to move to my Mac mini to rely less on cloud-based companies?" So that's a really interesting question. And Mac minis, by the way, are great computers for home servers. If you've never seen one, it's this tiny square ish box. It's about maybe an inch and a half high and maybe, I don't know, nine inches or eight inches square little computer. And they're tiny, but they're very, very capable. And they're honestly not that expensive. So they're, they're great little computers. You might want to tuck away somewhere and run server type things on it. Okay. So what, what's a server? So all server is, it's, is it's a computer that accepts requests from clients from usually, you know, your phone or another computer uh, that makes a request and responds to that request with something else. Well, that sounds generic, but like, what do you do? <laughs> What's a server? Well, Amazon is a server. Yahoo's a server. These are, you know, everything you interact with on the web, those are servers. They're there waiting for requests from you. Often it's just a web page, uh, but it could be other things too. You want to buy stuff. You want to do, you know, upload videos or whatever. These are all servers that are responding to requests. And so a lot of these services that we kind of take for granted that run on servers, computers out in the internet, and the cloud is just another name for someone else's computer. What if you could run some of those services yourself? What if you didn't have to depend on Dropbox, for example? What if you could run your own Dropbox? What if you could run your own photo server so that if you want to share photos with friends and family, you didn't have to upload those to some other service that you pay for or not? but that would then have access to your data and you're relying on them not to use that for their own purposes or leak it or have it hacked or whatever. What if you wanted to control your own destiny? You might want to run those services at home. And then you're thinking, well, how, how do I run an Amazon service from? Well, you wouldn't run Amazon, but you can run free and open source software, FOSS or, or other software you could buy even potentially. Uh, you can run as server software so that you can have your devices connect to it to share photos and files or, or movies or whatever you want. Now, there are some downsides to hosting a server at home, and I'm not sure, Braden, if this is something you would want to do. But if, if you now want to access the server data, let's say you're using it for like a Dropbox thing where you're doing file sharing. If you want friends and family to share files with, 
you, uh, then that server needs to be accessed outside of your home network. That means you're going to need to have some sort of access mechanism to your home network from outside the, from the broader internet. And the way that used to be done is you would poke a hole in your firewall so that at a certain port on your IP address, you would allow incoming requests and your firewall, which would normally block all such unsolicited requests from the broader internet would say, Oh, well, that's something he told me to expect. And I'm going to let that one through. Of course, what that means now is that your home server is now potentially attackable from anywhere on the internet through that open port in your firewall. Now, there are other things you can do as well. You can set up VPNs that are a more secure way to access devices inside your home network. You can use an overlay network like TailScale. Uh, these are certain things you could do, but depending on what you're doing with the server, that might be too complicated. It depends on how broadly available you want this server to be. But if it's just for family, then you could probably make this work. The other thing you're going to need to do is your home IP address, while it doesn't change very often, may change from time to time. So you might need to set up some sort of a dynamic DNS service so that all your devices, all your clients that are trying to connect to this server from somewhere, you know, can't just use the hard the hard-coded IP address unless you've bought a static IP address from your service provider, which is not common. If that IP address can change, and it, it can, you will need some sort of a dynamic DNS service, which monitors that, looks for IP address changes, and gives you a domain name that is always routable to get to your service. So that's technical, but you know, these are things you're going to have to consider if you want the server you're running at home to be accessible outside your house. Now, to answer the actual question, there's a ton of stuff that you could use uh, on this server. I've already mentioned one, and that's like a Dropbox replacement. The one I would probably recommend is called SyncThing. Uh, that's really cool. You could use SyncThing for, to, as a Dropbox kind of a replacement. You could also run Plex, which is a great media server. So if you actually have music or TV shows or videos, uh, movies, things that you've ripped maybe from DVDs in the past. If you've got movies that are in an undrm'd format that you want to be available to your devices, Plex is a great way to do that. Mastodon actually is something. If you wanted to run your own Mastodon instance, for some reason, you could do that at home. If you're a coder, or even if you're not a coder, there's a lot of things you could do with GitHub uh, besides hosting code, though that's the most common thing. But you could host your own wiki, for example, if you want to have a little home personal wiki where you maintain information between you and your family or a group of like-minded people. You could run a web forum as well. That's another thing that might be fun to do if you've got a group of people that want to keep in touch and want to have discussion forums, you could host that at home. You could even host like a video conferencing server if you wanted to replace Zoom, like Jitsi is something that's a free and open source video conferencing software you could host at home as well so that you don't have to go through something like Zoom. If you wanted, you could host a whole website if you wanted to, even if it's just for you and your family, if it's just a personal website that you don't want anyone to see but them. You might want to run your own email server, though I will tell you that that is fraught with problems. Any server you have that might be sending a lot of stuff, like emails in this case, uh, a lot of internet service providers will actually block that type of traffic. Furthermore, a lot of other web servers might not accept incoming emails from this type of a server because it's something that uh, that spammers do a lot. They host their own web servers and so they don't trust them. So while you could do that, it's that's that one's kind of harder to make work. But the really big one that I'm going to recommend is you might want to consider running NextCloud because that honestly covers a lot of the things I just talked about. NextCloud has plugins and applications that will let you do all sorts of things like LibreOffice. So you can kind of host your own cloud-based Google Docs using free and open source software. So if you're looking to do any of this kind of stuff, uh, honestly, the first thing I would look at is something called NextCloud because you could do a, you could replace a lot of, uh, of online services with that one kind of global umbrella application that has all sorts of other plugins that you can use to replace a lot of common cloud services. Now, I will say one more thing, of course, Braden was asking specifically about using a Mac mini, uh, but if you want to do this, there are other ways to do it as well. You can actually, if you've got like a file server, like a QNAP NAS or a Synology NAS uh, or an Unraid server, if you want to look that up, that's a really kind of a cool solution. A lot of these file servers also allow you to run Docker instances, and I'm not going to get into what all that is, but if you do a little research, you can actually run some of these things as Docker instances on file servers as well. And you can do those in the cloud. You actually, if you go to a service like Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E, or Vulture, V-U-L-T-R, or DigitalOcean, some of these services allow you to rent space on cloud servers and basically run your own Linux servers 
out in the cloud. So you don't actually have to do all this dynamic DNS and port forwarding crap on your, on your home network. You can actually just run these out in the cloud and do very similar things. Okay. Enough of that. Now let's get to the tip of the week. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, uh, just because we're already running a little bit long, but I wanted to mention it because it was almost perfectly timed after my last episode talking about fingerprinting and device fingerprinting. Mulvad, who is a very well-respected VPN provider, uh, one that I've often recommended, has gotten together with Tor, the maker of the Tor browser and the people who designed and spec'd out the Tor network. And Mozilla, who makes the Tor browser, actually, the Tor browser is based on Firefox. All this has come together, uh, and they have created a Mulvad browser. It's a privacy-oriented browser. Actually, it's basically the Tor browser without Tor. Now, we've talked about this before, and I'm not going to get into it a whole lot now, but Tor, uh, which used to stand for the Onion Router, T-O-R, the Onion Router, uses this complicated but well-designed technique to maintain your anonymity on the web. And by that, what I mean technically is that it hides your IP address so that the websites you go to cannot track you or correlate you across websites based on your, uh, your home IP address. But as super cool and technically savvy as the Tor network is, basically it inserts three more hops in every web request you make. And that necessarily will slow things down. And unfortunately, sometimes it makes your web experience almost unusably slow. So what if you want to get some of that same anonymity a different way? And the way a lot of people will do that is using a VPN. So what if you wanted to get all the yummy goodness, all the privacy features, all the other privacy features built into the Tor browser, but not use the Tor network? Well, they've come up with a solution that and it's called the Mulvad browser. So the cool thing about the Mulvad browser, besides being free and has and having all the great privacy features of the Tor browser, is that it can be actually used with any VPN. It's it's got a built-in plugin to be used with Mulvad and makes it you know makes that experience a little easier if you're already a Mulvad uh, customer. But you can use it with any VPN. So what kind of features does it have? Well, you know if you take the Tor part out, what do you have left? Well, it does a lot of great things. It makes your default search engine DuckDuckGo, though you can still pick whatever you want. It has DNS over HTTPS built in, which kind of tries to hide your DNS queries, which would give away the kind of websites you're going to. It has zero telemetry, collects no user data whatsoever. It has uBlock origin already built in. It automatically flushes all of your browser history and, uh, and cache and cookies and everything every time you quit the app or actually is a nice little button that you can press on the thing that will just quickly relaunch your browser to clean all that stuff. Basically, it's a it's in private or incognito mode all the time by default. And crucially, the most interesting part to me, I think, is that the Tor browser and now Mulved browser has built in anti fingerprinting technology. And it does a lot of things that we talked about last week. It tries to make you look generic. It tries to minimize the uniqueness of your browser instance. So for example, one of the things that your browser might tell the servers that it goes to is, hey, this is all the fonts that this person has installed in case you want to return some fancy lettering. Here are the plugins this browser has installed in case you want to do something special that requires a plugin. Here's what size their browser window is. So you know maybe how you want to render the images or the pages and how you want to arrange things. Here's what operating system they're running. Here's what browser they're running. And here's what specific versions of each of those they are running. So what the Mulvad and the Tor browsers do is they try to make those as plain vanilla as possible. In some cases, basically lying about those things. But for example, on the browser window size, it actually does this interesting thing where it only has certain acceptable browser sizes. Like there's a set of, of sizes that it allows so that you Otherwise, you would get some really odd window sizes that were very specific to you because it's just, a you know, it's 1,220 pixels by 532 pixels, right? Just because that's how you happen to drag your window size open. Well, to combat that, it only has certain fixed dimensions that it will allow. And so that when you resize the window, you will actually see letterboxing around the contents of the window because it's regardless of what you're actually setting your window size to be, it is only allowing certain dimensions for what that space is. And that is what it's reporting in an, in an effort to try to minimize the number of unique window dimensions possible. So 
that's the good and that's some of the bad. Now here's the ugly. I actually tested its ability to defeat fingerprinting on three different websites. Am I unique? Cover your tracks and fingerprint.com. And sadly, I was still unique on all three. So despite all of these efforts to defeat fingerprinting, they basically failed. Now, it's really hard to defeat fingerprinting, and I'm sure that I was a lot less unique than I would have been otherwise. These are all still good things to do. But nevertheless, it, <laughs> for that one aspect of the privacy features built into this browser, and there, there's several, uh, but for this one, for the anti-fingerprinting part, as far as I can tell, it did not succeed in making me look ge generic enough that I wasn't fingerprintable. Now, all that said, it's still a great idea. You know, maybe I won't use this all the time, but it's definitely something that'd be good to have installed for certain situations. You know, anytime I would be using a VPN was, is probably a time that I might want to be using this browser. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up, especially since it came out like right after we talked about fingerprinting. I thought the timing was just amazing. So I thought I would bring that to your attention and have you check it out. And of course, there's a link in the show notes with uh, to my article about this with more information including lots of links to other stuff, including how to download the Mulvad browser. All right, there you have it, your news, your Dear Carrie question, and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. The book reviews are slowly trickling in. Thank you. I've finally gotten up to seven. I've gotten seven reviews on Amazon so far. I could really use a lot more. But thank you for those of you who have already given your reviews. I very much appreciate it. Everyone helps. So if you have read the book, I would very, very much appreciate uh, if you could post a nice review on Amazon. They do make a huge difference. Now, I haven't gotten any podcast reviews, any new podcast reviews since like last summer. Uh, that's a long time. I would really love to get some more good reviews for the podcast as well. And the best place to do those are on Apple Music or iTunes or however you get to it. But that's where a lot of people get their reviews or Spotify. I actually don't watch Spotify for reviews. Maybe I should check in and see if there's been some reviews on Spotify. That's probably the next biggest outlet for podcasts. But I'm definitely overdue for some nice reviews there. So uh, I would love it if you could give a review there as well. Got some great interviews coming up. I'm going to be doing two interviews next week, which will probably be the next two interview shows that we do. One on IoT security and one on the impacts of social media and several more in the works. So, hey, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. That way you will get these episodes automatically all the time. You won't miss any of this goodness. I hope you enjoyed the panel discussion last week. I think I'm going to try to do more of those. I've actually got some new technology that will let me help record those and edit those better anyway. So it's become more feasible for me to do panel type discussion. So I'll, I'll probably try to do some more of those in the future. If there's anybody in particular you, you would like me to interview or any topic you'd like me to cover, I'd love to get your feedback. You can send that at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. If you dig the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons logo and you'd like to get some merch with that on it, uh, hat, tank top, t-shirt, hoodie, you name it, a coffee mug, <laughs> check out the merch store. That's at fdsd.me slash merch. And if you want to become a patron and get some of that great bonus content, check out fdsd.me slash support. Uh, or go to patreon.com and look for firewalls. Don't stop dragons. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>